welcome to the Hunts Backcountry Podcast today. This is episode number 284, and our guest is Dr. Robert H. Coker. He is a professor of biology and clinical nutrition and exercise physiology at the Institute of Arctic Biology. Wow, that's a mouthful. So Dr. Coker is a researcher, professor, and scientist, and he has actually studied backcountry hunting. When I first heard of this, I thought, wow, it's it's interesting because backcountry hunting, as much as we talk about it here on the podcast and as much as you may be interested in it, it's such a small part of the world that a lot of people don't know about. And I was never aware up until Dr. Coker's work of anyone who had studied backcountry hunting from a very scientific and academic perspective. But Dr. Coker has, and he has looked at the demands of backcountry hunting on the body in terms of nutrition, caloric expenditure, and things like that. So one such example is a report uh, that he published called The Energy Requirements of Metabolic Benefits of Wilderness Hunting in Alaska. Again, very scientific, but we break this down into things that you and I as hunters can understand. And so we take Dr. Coker's research and his findings and apply that to you and apply that to me for our hunting. And I was fascinated by this episode. I hope that you both enjoy it and learn from it as well. Before we dive into this discussion with Dr. Coker, I wanted to remind you guys about the giveaway that is happening this month in May of 2021. And you can enter in one of three ways. Number one, you can leave a review of this podcast in your podcast app. If, like in iTunes and Apple Podcasts, they do accept reviews. Number two, you can share this podcast on social media and tag us on Instagram at Hunt Backcountry. Or number three, you can email us directly with any questions, comments, or topic suggestions to podcast at exomountaingear.com. You guys have been doing that all month, and we truly appreciate it. And at the end of the month, we will be picking a winner for a $250 Exo Mountain Gear gift card and numerous winners just as a way to say thank you for some Exo Mountain Gear and Hunt Backcountry podcast swag. Shirts, hats, decals, things like that. All right, let's dive into this conversation with Dr. Robert Coker. Well, Dr. Coker, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Uh, We are really excited to chat with you today and to kick things off as uh, we often do. Just start with a little bit of background and context for letting the listeners know who you are and a bit about your story and kind of obviously a lot of experience and education and things you've done, but just a a high level to give listeners a taste of uh, who you are and why we're speaking with you today. Yeah, great. I appreciate that, Mark. Um, yeah, please call me Robert, or I'm actually a third Robert in my family, so most of my friends call me Trey. Um, uh, in terms of my background, uh, I took my Ph.D. in exercise physiology from University of Mississippi way back in 1995. Um, and, you know, I was always fascinated by physical activity, participated and uh, started participating in competitive sports. I think I played my first football game at six years old, six years old. Um, and then, you know, was in, on the track team and stuff like that in high school. I won't say that I was extraordinarily competitive, but I enjoyed it. Um, 
I was competitive in the process, but maybe not at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, so that led me, as I mentioned before, to pursue uh, graduate education. And uh, then, as I mentioned, went to Ole Miss or University of Mississippi for that. And I really got bit by the, the research bug in the process of, of my graduate education and went on to complete a couple of research fellowships, one at Vanderbilt University and one over in Copenhagen, Denmark at Bispebjerg Hospital. Um, and it was a bit surprising that that happened, you know, because I went into gra- the, my graduate education thinking I would teach exercise physiology. But I've been very fortunate to do a little bit of both and um, ended up at the University of Arkansas for medical sciences for over a decade, really focused on uh, mitigation of muscle loss and metabolic abnormalities with aging. And I really enjoyed that, but uh, I didn't get to teach as much as I would like to and got the opportunity to come to University of Alaska Fairbanks. I knew some people here, and my wife and I love the outdoors, and we had already been coming to Alaska for for several years, and uh, they offered me a position, and we've been here now going on eight years. Um, so that's a little bit of background, of uh, at least in terms of professional. And um, as I mentioned, we, we love the outdoors, hunting, fishing, uh, and up here in Alaska picking berries or cranberries or whatever. Uh, it's just great to be outside. Yeah, that's great. So I became aware of you because, uh, you've done some very specific research on backcountry hunting, or at least, uh, researched participants who were hunting. Um, and I find that interesting because it's as much as it's a a big part of our world, it's such a small part of the world. (laughs) It's its own little, you know, niche. Um, and I was oh, very curious when I saw that there was actually some some scientific research on backcountry hunting. So maybe just before we dive into what that research was and what your goal with the research was and what the findings were, how how did that come together uh, where you basically began to have a research project looking at the demands and effects of backcountry hunting? Wow. Well, it, it's, uh, it took, took some time because, you know, and going through that kind of background thing, it's like walking down memory lane to some extent. But, you know, back growing up, uh, back in the, the late 80s, and even when I was in graduate school in the, in the 90s, uh, we did a fair amount of backcountry hunting in the Appalachian Mountains. And I remember doing that, you know, in my late 20s and thinking, wow, this is so, I feel so powerful you know, after I finished a seven to 10 day trip. And, um, and then went on, as, as I mentioned, went on to, to get my, my graduate degree, uh, and then focused primarily on individuals who are at risk for metabolic disease. And what I mean by focused on trying to figure out what types of interventions, be, whether it be exercise or phys- physical activity, uh, or, you know, some permutation of each one or, and or some combination with dietary modification, what worked best to improve their health. And, you know, I've, I've done that for a number of years in a variety of different populations. And then when we got up here, I started thinking about it again. And a friend of, uh, I started thinking about how that might 
uh, apply to uh, the benefits of health benefits of backcountry hunting. And I've been friends with Brent Ruby at the University of Montana for like 20 years. Um, we're both basically about the same age. He would argue much younger, but I would say we're pretty close. Um, and then I became great friends, or I should say my wife and I both became really great friends with Larry Bartlett of Pristine Ventures. And uh, so we put together uh, the first study, and that was really designed to just a answer the question, how many calories do we uh, use while we're uh, do pursuing the, or doing these backcountry hunting uh, um, events, if you want to call them that? Uh, and then are we at a caloric deficit? Uh, and if so, does that have any impact on our health or does that cause us to lose skeletal muscle or impact our performance? So, you know, I've kind of set a mouthful there, but the first thing was just really to start off with how many calories we, we burn during backcountry hunting because you can't really, uh, there's no real way to um, uh, predict that using any, ty any type of existing algorithm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I do want to dive into that. Um, before we go into that, just what from your perspective and experience, uh, both firsthand and through uh, observation and research, what, what do you find unique or what stands out to you primarily um, about the, the demands of backcountry hunting that are maybe different than people might uh, understand or anticipate? Well, by its very nature, backcountry hunting is, is somewhat inconvenient, right? I mean, you don't get to sleep in your own bed. You don't get a shower in the morning. You don't have uh, food at your disposal unless you're carrying it in your backpack. Um, and so, you know, some of those, I think some of those, those things are very relevant. The other thing is that no matter uh, where you're at, you wake up and do the activity under the current environmental conditions. You don't have the luxury of going to a gym or a fitness center or whatever. Um, in other words, you just you just take the cards that you're dealt. And many, many times those cards can be inconvenient and often even downright unpleasant. Mm. Yeah. So to dive into the research and what you mentioned about uh, caloric intake and calorie deficits and all that. I guess let's start with what are what are some of the ways that um, caloric expenditures traditionally been measured and why was that maybe insufficient? Um, and then how did you ultimately assess that for the specific research we were referring to? Well, you know, there's there's been a, I mean, countless studies uh, done with uh, stationary bicycles and, and treadmills and things like that. And you can measure oxygen consumption in conjunction with those types of activities. And then prediction of equations have been developed that allow you to calculate um, uh, the amount of calories that are being utilized. And from that, you know, you can, uh, you can gauge, you know, when you go to the gym or whatever and you punch in your weight on the treadmill or whatever whatever type of uh, device that you're using or train, piece of training equipment, you can come up with an estimation, albeit not absolutely accurate. You can come up with a pretty good idea of how many calories you're using in that exercise bout. 
Um, and then that's been somewhat extended to the, with the use of wearable biometrics, or many people, almost everybody in the world now, it seems, is familiar with a Fitbit. But, you know, as, as wonderful as those approaches are, uh, when it comes to measuring energy expenditure during backcountry hunting, um, you, it's very, very difficult, if not almost impossible, to uh, understand or be able to capture the influence of load carriage or changes in incline and decline, um, uh, not to mention uh, changes in just the thermic effect of feeding that might be affected. Uh, by the backcountry hunting. And so, you know, the, for all those reasons, and one of the m most important being load carriage, because we don't always carry a 60-pound backpack. Oftentimes, it's, we try to keep it off of us more as, as much as possible. I mean, that just makes uh, sense from an econ economic perspective, uh, not to mention just the overall stress. And so the point is you've got alterations in whether you're carrying the load and when, when you're not and whether that load's affected by, um, you know, you're decreasing the amount of, uh, of your food kit or let's say you have a harvest and that dramatically increases your load carriage. For, for all those reasons, like I say, uh, we had to come up with a different approach. Wow. Uh, yeah, there's so many variables. And then so what was the approach? Well, you teed it up perfect. Or I guess you should say we teed it up perfect. Um, we use this methodology called doubly labeled water. Um, and really, it's, it's more simplistic than it might seem at first, at first mention. But we label the, or the, the hydrogen and the oxygen are labeled with this particular isotope or isotopic approach. And with that, we measure the amount of hydrogen label and oxygen label at the start of the hunt and then at the end of the hunt and really over time by taking several urine samples. And the hydrogen label comes off pretty predictably, almost at a constant level. But the oxygen label comes off directly proportional to an increase in energy expenditure. And so by calculating the difference between those two, uh, and I should say, uh, acquiring the expertise of an individual named Dale Scholler at the University of Wisconsin, who is real, literally the guru for this technique, you can very, very precisely determine energy expenditure. And in, in that, uh, that energy expenditure level or value captures all the things that we were talking about. And so you know, obviously a hydrogen label has no idea whether or not you're putting your backpack on or not, but it provides you with the constancy that you need kind of as a control. And then the oxygen uh, label being different, dependent on energy expenditure or dependent on the amount of oxygen being used, um, you get a very, very um, uh, effective, but also unbiased method of energy expenditure. Hmm. And that's all through urine sample. Yep, all through a urine sample. Wow. And, so, and there's some other other details to it. Like, I mean, I don't want to don't want to go too far into the weeds, but it just illustrates the the complexity, but also at the same time the granularity of the technique. Like, we had a couple of individuals that came from outside the the uh, outside of Alaska. 
And so their uh, normal values of labeled to unlabeled water were a little bit different than what you find in Alaska. So we had to uh, have one of those individuals basically serve as a test dummy and not give them any dose, any doubly labeled water dose. And the same thing was true for one of the Alaska hunters. And by doing so, we could uh, calculate the difference or measure the difference in the existing levels of what you call background label. So, you know, like I say, it gets it can get pretty tricky when you start talking about it. But the point is, we didn't miss a turn. And, and as far as making sure that uh, the data that we uh, derived were accurate. I don't know if this is too deep in the weeds or <laughs> that I can even understand it. But can you summarize that difference that you saw in the person who was from Alaska, not from Alaska, and why you had to have that control? If you could just layman's terms, what was the difference there? Yeah, so I probably should give a little bit more detail. What you what you do when the first when the individuals first come into the study, you measure what's called a background enrichment, and that is just the the amount of label relative to the amount of non-labeled hydrogen and oxygen, and so that kind of gives you for any measurement that you take after that, and after the dose of W label water is given, you have to know what that background is. In other, in other words, what the zero is. If you've ever done any type of measurement in a chemistry lab and you put a beaker on the on the scale, you have to tear it out. You have yeah. to zero it Your or, baseline. or zero, out, zero out the weight of the beaker. And so that's what we were doing is by taking the, the background level of hydrogen and oxygen and the people from, let's say, Florida, uh, compared to Alaska, we zeroed out any potential difference in the background label. And by doing so, that made sure that what we measured after the dose was accurate in terms of its ability to, de ability to determine energy expenditure. Hmm. Would you, super high level, would you say that the energy expenditure was the results that you discovered were higher, lower, or maybe fairly in line with what you maybe anticipated? I'd say they were probably in line, maybe a little bit higher. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's tough to know, but I, I had, I mean, obviously tough to know. That's why we wanted to do the experiment. But um, uh, just based on my own experience with the amount of weight that I would lose over a 10 to 12 day hunt. Uh, being a science geek, I could somewhat uh, anticipate what my energy expenditure might be to do that. Hmm. Okay. You mentioned load carriage. Uh, it's something where, you know, we as hunters deal with and that we're very interested in both in, in hunting and training and all kinds of attributes. Does I don't know if this is a fair question, but does pack weight essentially equal body weight when it comes to energy expenditure? Meaning if I, if I weigh 180 pounds and carry a 40 pound pack, is that the same demand as just someone who is 220 and not carrying additional weight? Generally speaking, yes. Okay. And, I, and to some extent, I mean, the quality of the backpack that you're carrying might either um, help 
your economical efficiency, if you will, of the, of the load carriage. Or if, the other way to think about it is if you have a really crappy backpack that doesn't, it might not even be a bad backpack, it's just not well fitted for the individual. Um, that can certainly have a detrimental impact on the economy of the movement. Yeah. Wow. That, In other that, words, yeah. go, go ahead. No, I was just saying that that alone would be fascinating to look at as different uh, different ways, methods, tools, meaning pack systems uh, carrying the same amount of weight, and what type of changes can be proven through that yeah it would be it'd be very interesting i i know myself would i wouldn't necessarily be the first one to sign up as a research participant because <laughs> you know over the past 30 uh 30 35 years i can tell you that the technology for backpacks has improved dramatically um i, I won't name any of the ones that i used to use back in my late 20s but uh, I like the one I have now much better yeah. for those very for those very reasons. I mean, it's it just fits me better. It's and you know the same thing is true for I think this is exceptionally relevant for women because generally speaking, most guys have a lot more uh, choices uh, and trying to get a pack that's fitted well for a woman is a real challenge sometimes. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So let's talk a bit about, you mentioned even from your personal experience, uh, weight loss over an extended hunt, say a 10-day hunt. Whether from research or your own personal experience, how have you assessed that and planned or would recommend planning for that? And essentially what I'm boiling down to is, is it recommended or even possible to consume enough calories to fully replace what is burned on an extended backcountry hunt. And I know that, you know, people can make decisions, right? Some guys want to keep minimal pack weight and will sacrifice and eat 2,500 calories a day. And another guy might want to pack 4,000 calories a day. And both of those guys may be still burning more than that. But uh, again, both from research and personal experience, what are some of those decisions and uh, ways to help us and our listeners think through those choices? Well, I, I, I think the first thing an individual needs to do is to define their objective. Um, and I'm not dodging the question, but I'm just kind of making sure that, that that's well appreciated. Um, and other, defining objective and then uh evaluating that objective relative to what might be available. And I'll give you a couple of examples. If I were like, let's say I was hunting close, relatively close to a vehicle or a pretty robust camp and in the West for elk or even for blacktail deer on Kodiak, I might have pretty, pretty, uh, amazing access to those kinds of things compared to uh, a backcountry sheep hunt where I've been dropped off by a super cub somewhere in the middle of nowhere and I'm having to carry everything that I need. And so that's what I mean by it's it, all based on the objective and the resources that a person might have under those circumstances. Um, and so 
that's the first thing. The second thing is that with our backcountry hunting studies, what we've shown is despite the fact that people are in negative caloric balance, they don't lose any skeletal muscle. And we measured that by magnetic resonance imaging of the, of the thigh, of the upper thigh, or cross-sectional area of the upper thigh, and uh, no change in lean tissue mass. Um, whether they were sheep hunters or whether they were uh, float hunters, which if you know anything about Larry Bartlett and his float hunts, it's more of a float drag or even a drag float. Uh, there's, there's a lot of activity. In fact, you know, the sheep hunters burned about 4,500 4, calories a day. The float drag hunters burned about 3,800 uh, calories a day. So you can see there's a little bit of difference, but not that much. Um, and so, you know, as I, as I mentioned, it kind of depends on the objective and the resources that a person might have. But even in the case of uh, an individual that is carrying only what they can on their, on their back, they can still afford uh, negative caloric balance. Uh, and in addition to what we measured in terms of no change in, in skeletal muscle, they lost adipose tissue, which you could argue may, might make them more efficient um, and that they're carrying less weight. Uh, going back to the question you had about a backpack, if you reduce the amount of uh, weight in your backpack, then that would make you more efficient. Same thing might be true or should be true in terms of body fat. Um, and then, you know, in the first study that we published, we showed actually a, a small increment in VO2 peak or VO2 max, um, despite the fact that they were in negative energy balance. So, you know, I don't, I don't know, and I'm not saying really either way, but it doesn't seem like that uh, losing body weight, at least a minimal amount of body weight, uh, is not... Not, I don't mean implied like it wasn't any body weight loss, but uh, it wasn't dramatic uh, in terms of, you know, it wasn't like they lost 50 pounds or anything like that. Um, you know, losing 10 pounds of uh, even, even 5 pounds of, of body fat uh, may, may have a beneficial uh, and probably does have a beneficial uh, impact on the quality of the hunt and particu particularly even the the ability of the hunter what was the like average kind of miles hiked and elevation gained for for these hunters that you um surveyed we did not um we did not keep track of miles hiked or uh elevation gained or anything like that we just focused on the energy expenditure mm. but i can okay. i can tell you i can give you a way to think about that uh, we know from, you know, the, the negative caloric balance, you can calculate or you can estimate what that would be analogous to in terms of a, of a workout. Mm -hmm. And for on average, you know, these people were in about 2,300 calories of neg negative caloric balance. And that equates to somewhere around 16 to 18 miles uh, of running at a 10 minute per mile pace every every single day um and so you know if you th another way to think about that is if you're running a 10 minute mile pace six mile you know for for six miles i mean most people can do that that's like a be relatively representative of a moderate exercise but 
how many people do you know that are doing that three hours a day every single day in their workout? Not very many. Yeah. Did you see um, large discrepancies between individuals? Or is not it- really. Not really. No, and and we didn't. We did not try to, you know, we did not try to m- manipulate uh, who uh, signed up for the study or who was interested in the study, and we did not try. So, you know, we just took a, a relatively relatively wide range, but uh, or age range, but I would say middle-aged individuals that would be classified as generally healthy. Hmm. Were there any Males addition- and females. Yeah. Were there any additional uh, markers or you know, physiological data sets that you were looking at besides energy expenditure? Um, you know, were you looking at anything you can learn from blood chemistry? It, it, I, I'm not even sure what's all available. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the scientist, but um, were there any other markers essentially or things that you learned or observed from these participants besides the energy expenditure? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the things that, you know, I've mentioned a little bit about the work I've done before uh, that's been very central to, you know, my overall career objectives and trying to find out, you know, what works best to to reduce the, the burden of metabolic disease. And one of the things that I think is the most remarkable about these studies is that in basically in about 12 days, these individuals lost about 10% of their body fat and and 10% of their visceral fat, which is visceral fat is particularly pathogenic. Uh, I don't know if you understand that term, but basically it's the fat. If you try to pinch fat on your belly, you'll never get to the visceral fat because it's inside that abdominal compartment. Um, But the reason it's so pathogenic is it tends to be more insulin resistant or less affected by insulin. And as a result, it it shows up uh, to a greater degree or is delivered to a greater degree uh, to the liver. And then in many cases, this will set up uh, metabolic abnormalities and the functioning of the liver or proper functioning of the liver because the liver becomes overloaded with fat. This is actually a huge problem in our modern society or you know, excess liver fat or what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, and so we saw, going back to what I was talking about, we saw a 10% reduction in body fat and visceral fat as well, and a 30% reduction in intrahepatic lipid. And these are individuals that are healthy. Now, these aren't people that are uh, obese or, you know, anywhere close to that, but yet we're still seeing or we still saw these improvements uh, in 12 days, you know, less than two weeks, um, and a 40% reduction in triglycerides and a 20% reduction in total cholesterol. I can tell you that in my 20-year career of doing a wide variety of exercise and dietary interventions, I've never seen anything like this in this short of a, a period of time. That was going to be my next question. Like, what is comparable to this? A guy running a triathlon, you know, or competing in a triathlon? Um yeah, the problem is so many people that, that need this kind of um, uh, intervention may not ever have the opportunity to do it for different reasons or don't might not have the self-efficacy. Uh, or in the case of, of, of backcountry hunting, I mean, it's very challenging and potentially dangerous 
uh, if you don't have the right support systems. And so, like I said, these people were all healthy and able to do this kind of activity. You know, but it, what it really shows is when it comes to exercise, dose matters. Um, and it, it really, it's kind of a play on words to some extent, but I hope you understand that, you know, it, it makes a difference how much physical activity, it makes a huge difference how much physical activity uh, is involved uh, when it comes to, to trying to have a beneficial effect on metabolic health. That is super interesting to hear the you know, those changes i mean they're very comprehensive uh that's, that's a lot going on within the body as you said in just a very short time frame yeah it, it really surprised me i mean i was optimistic uh i try to be as unbiased as i can when it comes to you know doing these any type of clinical research study but you know i, I can't help but be a fan if you know what i mean <laughs> this is but I'm, I'm just telling you, you know, I did not analyze. In fact, the, the blood chemistries were all done by a company called LabCorp. And so, you know, that's a, that's a third-party uh, group that did an independent analysis on all these parameters. So, um, and then the intrahepatic lipid calculations were done by some people who are clinical chemists. And, you know, that's beyond the scope of my expertise. I can interpret the data, but I'm not the one, I'm not the one doing the analysis. So, you know, the data that I just, just mentioned to you are completely unbiased. Would you, again, I, I, I'm not trying to answer questions that are beyond the scope of like your research or what you would feel comfortable recommending or speaking to, but just thinking of, you know, that 12 day hunt is something that's, uh, guys may get to do once a year, right? For some guys, that's a few times a year. For many people, it's maybe once a year. For some, it's every two to three years in our audience. But elements of that lifestyle, um, you know, putting a 40 or 50 pound pack on and hiking for two or three hours is part of your day-to-day -day life, right? Not every day, but maybe two to three times a week. I mean, I'm assuming that those are obviously just great things and still would help with everything you just mentioned if you make it part of your lifestyle and not just this once a year 12-day trip oh absolutely and i can tell you that you know from a personal perspective and also from what's in the scientific literature it just becomes more difficult to be prepared uh, as you get older i mean that's a real real issue um, for a lot of different reasons, um, but there's no doubt that that, that that's a, something that we struggle with. For example, we know that we lose about three to five percent of our muscle mass every decade past the age of 30. Um, and you know there's a lot of different physiological reasons why that takes place. Some of our research, you know in, in sarcopenia with, with elderly adults is trying to, mitigate some of that muscle loss, but be that as it may, it just makes it all the more relevant as to why we should stay in the game, if you will, in the off season uh, and try to be as prepared as we can be, recognizing that some people have more time to do that than others, but um, you just whatever time that you might have, uh, try to be able to, to get out there and, and do what you can to prepare yourself for whatever your objective might be. And, and kind of what I mean by that is that 
or something to utilize in in that and uh, and in, in, in that scheme of things is is just being aware of the the fundamental training principles which you may have had other people on the podcast talk about but one of the most important is overload you know we don't ever strengthen our body unless we overload it and we don't continue to strengthen it unless we uh, apply progressive overload in other words you know if i can if i can curl 30 pounds and i do that for two or three weeks then i probably need to increase the weight if i want to continue to get stronger get my make my bicep muscle stronger using a very simple uh simple analogy the other thing is specificity you know if i'm interested in doing backcountry hunting then bicep curls might be helpful to me but not really the most helpful thing what's going to be uh more likely than not um uh, the 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 valuable uh training component should not ignore my legs right uh and uh, exercising my legs not just for one maximum lift and and uh, lift lifting weights but uh walking or jogging for a longer period of time not necessarily at a high intensity but just for a long period any of your sheep hunting guides will tell you just get out and walk and then then start you know preparing yourself start walking and then when you get to where you can carry a little bit of weight carry a little bit of weight and focus on that uh, first and foremost and get your legs ready and you know that kind of speaks to duration and i've already talked about intensity I mean, you're, some of your best ultra-endurance athletes, not saying necessarily that backcountry hunters are ultra-endurance athletes, but we're certainly doing or performing exercise over several days. Uh, and one of the best training principles that they have to help them achieve their objective is just long, slow distance, or you know what we used to call LSD way back in the day. But it's still a really important training principle in helping us improve the function of our mitochondria which is basically the exchange you know currency exchange uh that's taking a substrate and converting it to energy hmm. it, something that's you know comes up and we've talked about in the podcast and i just i constantly see uh the discussion being had in general nutrition and specifically in the hunting world is just debates, thoughts, different opinions on macronutrients. Um, and obviously, I think one thing that's unique, and this goes back to, uh, we were talking about earlier about calories in total, but clearly, uh, fat being more calorically dense, we could optimally, by optimally, I mean, uh, from a pack weight perspective, pack higher fats and have less um carry less food just in pure poundage on a 10 day hunt. Um, d does any of your research or background look at macronutrients specifically, or you've been more focused on energy and expenditure as a whole? Um, I'd just love to hear any of your perspective on macronutrients and performance and backcountry hunting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really, uh, it's really interesting question that a lot of people uh, have been focused on. You know, in the studies that we've done with the backcountry hunters, uh, and also I think we're in the fourth year where we've been studying the athletes competing in the longest version, the 430-mile 
uh, version of the Yukon Arctic Ultra, which is billed as the longest and, or maybe it's the coldest and toughest ultra marathon in the world. Uh, as a researcher, I can tell you it's cold. <laughs> I haven't actually been a participant, but I've collected <laughs> samples at 55 below Fahrenheit, so I, wow. I, I know it hits that benchmark. Um, but and with that study, or with those studies, and also with another one, the Alaska Mountain Wilderness Ski Classic, where every year they go uh, cross-country ski over one of the Alaska mountain ranges. And so you can imagine that you can't just cross-country ski right up a mountain, so they have to break trail, and it's, long story short, it's a, it's a difficult event. And almost all of these are pretty, uh, almost completely uh, unscripted uh, in terms of what the athletes carry in terms of their what's in their food kit and we haven't tried as researchers we haven't tried to manipulate that for several different reasons one we wanted to study uh, the circumstances as they presented themselves first right and and then many of these athletes would not necessarily want you manipulating their food kit but one thing we we do find uh, we have already found with uh, doing this work over, over, uh, over a few years now is consistent with what you're talking about, and that is trying to um, increase their, uh, their calorie-to-weight ratio in a way that makes sense. And, you know, and they, they seem to be pretty good at that. I know that in the last study that we published, the last what we call Hunt study, we noticed that we did evaluate how much protein, how much carbohydrate and, uh, and fat the, the research participants were consuming. And I can tell you that every single one of them, except for one, um, maintained their lean tissue mass. And the only one that didn't was consuming about 0.6 grams per kilogram uh, body weight of protein. And you can, if you know anything about protein requirements, that's clearly below the RDA for protein. But everybody else, whether they were at uh, 0.7 all the way to 1.6, uh, they all maintained their, their lean tissue mass. In fact, they increased it a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, as long as it, it looks like from the research that we're doing, as long as you're uh, consuming the RDA for protein, that you're going to be able to maintain your muscle. Um, and I, I recognize that there are some, you know, there's numerous papers in sports nutrition literature that suggest higher levels of protein intake. Uh, but that's, those recommendations were made largely for muscle hypertrophy. And, you know, the, the objectives for these uh, backcountry hunters might not be muscle hypertrophy, but just muscle remodeling. In other words, balancing the, re the relationship between synthesis and breakdown, because as we all know or should know, our, our, our muscles are not static organs. They're very dynamic, and they're constantly changing in terms of the contractile synthesis and breakdown, mitochondrial synthesis and breakdown, um, and just being able to remodel that based on the overload that's presented to it without loss is a win in this particular case. Hmm. I like that. I mean, it's good to um, it's good to hear. There's there's some basics to hit, as you said, hitting those recommended baselines, and then it sounds like there's some flexibility on 
if you want to go higher fat or higher carb or go according to preference or maybe the the type of fuel that you've personally trained to um you know yeah just having that flexibility there yeah and that's really i'm glad you mentioned that last part that's very very important you know you you my recommendation would be to experiment at home with uh different types of foods that you might carry you you don't want to be stuck in a tent or even you know out hiking a bunch trying to to be successful in harvesting an animal and have some kind of problem based on uh, an experimental uh, uh, f- experimental application of, of a different type of food kit than you're used to. Um, some people are not that sensitive to those types of things. Others are very sensitive, and you know someone who's not used to consuming a lot of fat that all of a sudden switches to a higher fat diet. Uh, we we know very clearly that that can present a problem in some cases. Hmm. How about hydration? Um, any particular? Again, I'm I'm leaning on both anything from research or personal experience or observations, but in terms of guidelines, specific protocols, things to avoid uh, as it comes to hydration in these multi-day physical activities? Well, I'd be the first one to say that I'm, I am don't consider myself to be a hydration expert from a scientific perspective. Um, I, that being said, I, I do, like so many of us, recognize that it's important um and what i what i do know from a scientific basis is we want to stay ahead of that curve uh and you know i I can remember back in the day hearing and even having some professors tell me that you know if you if you get to where you're really thirsty then it's too late and i think that's a bit harsh uh, but the point being is that we always want to m- try to make sure that we're hydrated. And, you know, I did a, a solo sheep hunt a couple years ago, and I was just pushing myself probably a little too hard. And I recognized that I was becoming uh, a bit uh, dehydrated. And I just slowed myself down and took about an hour break to get myself back in hydration shape, if you will. And understanding your body and how you respond to, to physical stress is something that's really, in my opinion, really important as far as recognizing the, the, you know, the risk of dehydration or a problem that it might present, especially if you're by yourself or even if, we, even if you're with a friend or you know, with a, a family member or whatever, you certainly don't want to be a burden on them because you weren't kind of checking the gas gauge for your hydrated status. Steve, I know you were, uh, we were just chatting this morning um, and talking about a hike that uh, you guys did this past weekend. And uh, Robert, we're getting ready to do a multi-day hike, uh, a good portion of which is going to be on snowshoes uh, coming up here in about a week and a half. And um, from that test hike, Steve, you mentioned some of the guys were, were facing issues with cramping. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, Robert, I'm somewhat leaning on not just research, but personal experience, but, you know, we've heard and we've experimented ourselves with things like salt pills and just stay on type of, on type of, on top of, excuse me, electrolytes along with hydration. Uh, Robert, is there anything else that you would have us take a look at, um, in terms of cramping and hydration and electrolytes, uh, in that area? 
I think that the thing that I would encourage is just acclimatizing a person uh, to those kinds of stressors. I mean, sometimes we can we can become very focused on what we're ingesting, but what we're exposing ourselves to in terms of the physical stress is probably equally important and maybe even argued that it's more important. And many of the individuals, for example, that, you know, a couple, well, it's been three years ago now, uh, I got a French Brittany Spaniel because I've done a wide variety of waterfowl hunting over the years. We really haven't talked about too much on this call, but, um, and since I left Arkansas, I don't do as much of it, but I came, became very interested in upland game hunting and I just absolutely love it. It's just so it's all the things about backcountry hunting, but none of the pressure. And the, the, the dog is the one that gets to go find the game. We just get to hopefully uh, get a shot at them. But um, anything, the point, anyway, the point that I'm getting at is I've learned a, a lot from uh, people in the dog training world about hydration. And their approach is to acclimatize first and then make sure that their you know that their dogs or their the canines are are hydrated prior to whatever they're asking them to do and uh and so that that that'd be my statement on it i'd I'd come at it from more of a preventive strategy than trying to recover uh not not any not anything against recovering or using some electrolyte um, approach or whatever but i think acclimatization and then making sure that people are hydrated uh, during the activity and also before it is really important. Can you kind of elaborate on climatization? Well, um, you know, if you're not used to, to exercising in a, in a cold environment, then you may not be, you may not be uh, aware of how much sweat, a cold and dry environment, you may not be aware of how much you're sweating. You know, like if you go and exercise in, in May in Memphis on a sunny day, you're going to be very well aware of how much, you know, how much body, uh, how much fluid you're losing uh, through sweat because you, you're going to be sweating consi considerably. I can tell you that because I know I, I live there uh, for summer. It's one of the most hot and humid places in the world, in my opinion. But you might not realize that when you might not realize those sweat rates if you're uh, trying to go up a mountain or snowshoe uh, over um, uh, some some mountain uh, in in March in Colorado, uh, where it's really dry, and you're thinking, "Oh, this is so comfortable." But be that as it may, your body is still producing a lot of heat, and in dissipating that heat, you're going to sweat, and you may not recognize how much you're sweating and not be aware of of the need to hydrate. So, you, so going yeah. into that event, you're saying being like, do you have any idea of the timeline to hydrate your body going into that? Should, you know, should you start drinking water 24 hours before, you know, 72 hours before? Is there a kind of a, a method to get so that your body is ready for it to start? Yeah, I think just, you know, avoiding things like uh, alcohol before. <laughs> an event like that or an activity like that is a step in the right direction. And then just making sure that you're, you know, that you're relatively well hydrated. I'm not saying to drink, you know, gallons of water before or anything like that, but then also at the same time, consistently drinking water. 
um, not just waiting till you're done with the day, but drinking water over the course of the day, you know, every, every 20, 30 minutes, something like that is really important. And in turn, going back to your question in terms of acclimatization, kind of what I was getting at and uh, discussing some of those examples or presenting some of those examples, if you're not, if an individual's not used to that, then they should probably take things a little bit slower than they normally would. Or if they have time to do a, a particular activity in a similar type of environment, maybe not as, as long, but just for, uh, you know, short periods of time uh, prior to going with a group over a weekend or something like that, uh, that would be highly beneficial. Awesome. I, uh, Robert, I could ask you questions all day and, and keep learning from you, but uh, I want to hear a little bit about hunting. You, you mentioned a solo sheep hunt, obviously being an Alaska resident now for several years you've had uh plenty of opportunity obviously as a as a resident there's plenty of opportunity to have some adventures up there so what's a what's a highlight for you what have been some of the uh either stories lessons learned or just really high notes of your time there in alaska having uh spent much more time in the south and the lower 48 and now transitioning to hunting the mountains up there uh, that's that's probably the most difficult question you've asked me. <laughs> um, you know, I came here, you know, I, always wanting to to do a sheep hunt and hopefully harvest a sheep. It's been a dream of mine for had been a dream of mine for for many many years. And getting my my first sheep and and bringing it back down to camp and having my wife uh, cape it out who has a lot more patience than I do when it comes to things like that. Uh, that had to be a, a real highlight. That's probably one of my favorite pictures of all time is her sitting there caping my sheep after I was completely exhausted. Um, that was, that was great. And then this past year we did a, she and I did a, a mountain goat hunt on Kodiak and we were both successful. And we just had two very, very narrow weather windows. And the ability to pull that off was, was extraordinarily satisfying. But I can tell you the other thing is that, you know, that not all hunts have been successful. Um, and one of the things that, has, that I've really enjoyed here uh, in Alaska, as opposed to sitting in a deer stand or uh, or chasing turkeys, which I still enjoy, don't get me wrong, is the ability to, to interact with multiple game species and learn more about their behaviors and how they can use some of those behaviors uh, to put the slip on you is, uh, is just been, like I say, really, really fascinating. And, and I've en enjoyed it uh, tremendously. Um, yeah, as I talk about it, it just, you know, all these different memories come up. But then, you know, I mentioned hunting with my wife, but then also going with my son and and my stepdaughter who just recently uh, got bitten by the sheep hunting bug and has now, she finished her degree at University of Montana and just recently moved up here. She lives down south of us in Anchorage, but uh, we're, a, we're a hunting and fishing family and that's Overall, that's probably the most satisfying aspect of it. That is awesome. 
Was uh was your wife a hunter before Alaska in terms of big game? Yeah, generally speaking, I mean, uh, we're coming up on our ten year anniversary, and you didn't ask my age, but I can tell you that we didn't get married when we were twenty. Um, <laughs> and she had kids from a previous marriage, and I've kind of very gleefully inherited some them to some extent. Uh, but she would take them on, you know, hunting trips, whitetail uh, types of, you know, whitetail hunting trips. And uh, but then coming up here, you know, we we were visiting largely just to go on fishing uh, uh, fishing trips down around the Kenai Peninsula. We have friends down there, and we still visit. Uh, but but yeah, she's very involved in the outdoors, and in fact. I'll give a little plug for her work. She's a retired uh, science school, or, or science school. She's a, rep- a retired science teacher from public schools and is finishing up her Ph.D. in natural resources and sustainability. Oh, wow. So she's a, actually the first author on the latest hunting paper and now just published a paper on the, the health benefits of of uh, free-range red meat compared to commercial beef uh, and showing that free-range red meat seems to promote higher levels of, of net protein balance in humans, uh, largely because they seem to have more essential amino acids by weight. And so anyway, yeah, it just kind of, kind of shows we, we really do, we're very passionate about the, uh, about the benefits of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle uh, and very fortunate to be able to pursue some of this work. That is awesome. To to wrap up, what would be some good way? Because now I'm now I'm personally just interested in following uh, your wife's work as well, and more work to come from you and research. What are good ways to stay in touch with that? I know that obviously prior to this show, I've I've done my own research and I've I've looked at places, but any resources that you can point listeners to? Um, if they're interested in both the research that's out there as well as maybe following what's to come. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, I mean, you feel free, anybody feel free to reach out. I'm a faculty member, professor of biology at the university of Alaska Fairbanks. Um, feel free to, to email me, uh, at R C O K E R at alaska.edu. Um, uh, it's pretty easy email. Uh, you can also find our research articles on PubMed. Uh, it's just a um, international uh, search engine for medical or uh, literature, scientific literature, and um, you can find our our work on on that using that search engine. I'm also putting together, believe it or not, finally putting together my own. Uh, website that will detail some of our work, or I shouldn't say some of our work, uh, a lot of this work in conjunction with other uh, other research projects that we're doing as well. Perfect. Do you know what the, even if it's not up yet, what the uh, domain or website address will be? Um, wow. <laughs> it's okay if not. The, the reason I throw that in there is... Uh, people seem to find these podcasts even well after they're released, right? So uh, in a year from now, that site might be up and running and somebody might just now hear the conversation. I just didn't know if you knew offhand. 
If you can give me just a second, I might be able to find it, but I'm not promising anything. Yeah, no worries. Uh, it's, uh, we can always do an update at a later time as well. I want to say it's Robert H. Coker, PhD.com. Okay. I would imagine in the in the future as well, it's probably going to hop up on Google if somebody's searching for it as well. So I think that's it. I should know that. You embarrassed me there. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I know that uh, all that technical stuff, you know, it takes a certain person to tackle that. Well, you, you have to be almost a bit uh, shameless to promote yourself to start with. Right. And that that's something I'm not uh, I could might be a little bit, could be a little bit better at. Um, but, yeah, I think that's I feel pretty confident that that's the the website. But then, like I say, I mean, people can find me if you just type in Alaska and Robert Coker. Um, I think there's a web link for the Institute of Arctic Biology, which is where my research appointment is, is uh, housed. Or located so you know feel free to reach out uh, that way too yeah appreciate that Robert thank you for the time here and uh, you know it, I know we are not academics and uh, it's just good though to have access to someone like yourself it's good to know that there's uh, some research out there to help us in our pursuits and as everyday guys trying to enjoy the backcountry and it's great to hear as well even behind that research just you personally are out there having those experiences so it's uh it's been very cool to connect and thank you for sharing all this with us today yeah absolutely mark i'm i I feel fortunate to just be able to do some of the things that we've we've done and um i consider myself uh you know a backcountry hunter uh just like you guys and and that's the real point we're just trying to communicate information Well, there you have it, guys. That's what science says about backcountry hunting. I hope you learned from this episode as I did. Once again, there are links in the show description to the research paper from Dr. Coker, as well as a link to his Google Scholar profile, where you can see more of his research and work. Once again, don't forget the May giveaway that's happening now in May of 2021, where you can enter to win a Exo Mountain Gear gift card by leaving a review by sharing the show on social, or by emailing us with a question or topic suggestion for a future show to podcast at exomountaingear.com. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button wherever you are listening to this podcast so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we will talk to you soon.